Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Darsh Shah. And I'm Dr. Ultima Shraja. And welcome to Medicine Redefined. A podcast where we will explore the often overlooked but necessary components of health, what we consider to be the fundamentals. We will investigate topics and practices that can give you and your patients the best chance to optimize a healthy lifestyle. It's time to move the needle forward and put the health back in healthcare. Our guest today is Nicole Lemerall. Nicole is the CEO of the National Association of Free and Charitable Clinics, who works daily with its 1,400 member organizations and its partners like CVS to advance the mission of ensuring the medically underserved have access to affordable, quality health care. Nicole has testified before Congress, is a regular TV commentator who has been featured on MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News, to name a few, and has also published numerous articles on the important role of America's safety net and charitable care providers. Nicole has been named four times by the Nonprofit Times as one of the top 50 most influential and powerful nonprofit executives in the United States. She has received the Center of Nonprofit Excel Award for Excellence in Executive Nonprofit Leadership. In this episode, we discuss many things, most of which revolve around the topic of healthcare disparities and healthcare equity. We start by learning about Nicole's background and passion for advocacy. We then jump right in and discuss how people of different socioeconomic status have drastically different challenges when it comes to access to healthcare. Now, it's hard to have a conversation about barriers in healthcare without discussing our healthcare model in the US. So we briefly touch on that and chat about health insurance, of course, and the transparency or lack thereof that needs to be addressed and how it potentially could be addressed for a healthier and better system. A natural bridge from there is talking about the business of medicine, so we spend some time there as well. You might hear us talking about earning a seat at the table. And this is something that you might have heard some variation of uh, on previous episodes when discussing improvement of healthcare practices. We know that assessment is step number one when thinking about any plan. And our assessment is that we need to be more engaged at the policy level and during these higher order conversations beyond patient care. Only then can we strive for improvement. Lastly, we also highlight a ton of resources that Nicole's organization has provided throughout the country. And if you find that you need some assistance, I highly suggest that you do reach out to them. All of those will be linked in the show notes for you. Now, without further delay, please enjoy this conversation with Nicole Lemerall. All right, Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited to delve into the things that we're going to talk about today, a lot of it being healthcare policy. Um, But why don't we start with your background and your journey and kind of how you got into this? Sure. Well, I'm just so grateful to be here with you. Um, my name is Nicole Lamro, and I'm the president and CEO of the National Association of Free and Charitable Clinics. And how I got involved with this is that when I was 33 years old, I was diagnosed with inflammatory breast cancer. And I was diagnosed on Valentine's Day, actually. And I remember that because I thought, well, this is one heck of a way to start my, my Valentine's Day. And I went and asked my parents, what happens to uninsured people when they get some sort of big diagnosis as this? Now, I had done a great job in Washington, D.C., making rich people richer. I was excellent at this. So I had the best insurance that you could think about. And I still had to clear out my 401k to pay for my cancer treatments. And my parents, uh, being both teachers, their answer was, 
well, why don't you do some research and find out? Um, as only teachers could tell you to do. And I started looking Homework, into right? where <laughs> where do uninsured people go and um, where do they go if not the emergency room? And I found a core group of 70 free clinics across the United States of America who provided access to healthcare to people who are uninsured. And now this was all pre-Affordable Care Act time. And I was um, very lucky that they, uh, after meeting with them, that they trusted me to build an association or a group of these free and charitable clinics. So now fast forward um, from 2007 till now, we started at with 75 clinics. Now we have over 1400 clinics across the United States of America. We have a volunteer and staff workforce of over 200,000 people. We provide healthcare to 2 million uninsured annually. Uh, but don't don't think that's so crazy. I mean, we, we only have a staff of four. So we're still a very small organization in of ourselves. But it really, um, that journey made me recognize that uh, we all have a place in this world to help each other as we on our journeys of health. It's the number one thing we all take for granted. If you're feeling fine, you jump up in the morning and you don't even think about your health. But you both know better than anyone else that when you're sick or someone that you love is sick, it becomes the most important issue in your life. And it's all you can think about. And then if you can't afford it, it becomes even more prevalent in what you're doing on a daily basis. Nicole, I'm curious, what sparked the thought about those who can't afford healthcare or appropriate amount of healthcare? Like, where did that even come from? Was it somebody close to you? Because you mentioned that you had good insurance, right? I mean, I know that you exhausted a lot of your retirement savings, mm -hmm. but is it after you were kind of just digging that well dry that that thought came to you? Was it somewhere prior to that? No, it was actually just in the middle of uh, one of my chemo treatments when uh, one of my doctors and, and the hospital administrator came in and told me that my next treatment, if I chose to go along the path, because we had um, really exhausted all treatments that, that we had, that if I wanted to go a different path, it was $250,000 for the next treatment I was going to have and that my insurance wouldn't cover it. And the woman next to me said, well, honey, how are you going to do that? I couldn't afford it. And uh, she was older at the time she was 60. And we became very good, you know, friends throughout the process. And that just spurred my conversation of, I, I had to have known people who were uninsured as I was growing up. Um, but no one talked about it. It's almost as if it's a taboo in this country. It's still a taboo. Um, and every time I do uh, television appearances or I speak to reporters, I now ask people, do you have health insurance? Uh, because it's we have to break down that wall. I think we're so ashamed to say that we don't have it or this misconception after the Affordable Care Act, everyone had health insurance and, and nothing mm -hmm. could be farther from the truth. And now knowing with Medicaid unwinding and the public health emergency ending on May 11th, that there's going to be even more people that are uninsured. I think just my curious nature at that time, but I really have to say that it was Annie next to me that probably brought that thought. But after I said that and started talking to my parents, they started explaining to me that my grandfather had, he was a bridge worker and he didn't have insurance. And then his parents didn't have insurance and all the substitute teachers that were part of my friend's family group didn't have insurance. But again, no one talked about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that was gonna be my next question is, what was your upbringing like? Were you kind of middle class, upper class? You know, where were you guys on that socioeconomic spectrum? Um, I would say that we were very lower middle class, um, if not, uh, upper um, 
underprivileged and I didn't know it. Uh, my parents, I, I came from a very small town. My town was walkable. Everything that we talk about now is something that I was blessed enough to have, even if we didn't have the money for it. I could walk anywhere I wanted to go. My friends had safe neighborhoods to play in. The neighbors themselves, there was always someone who had enough food to share with someone else if you were tired. If you were out playing with your friends, some mom made some half peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for someone to have. Um, you know, I think that that sense of community I was able to have. I, I didn't have, I always remember you all are much younger than I am, but there were these things called trapper keepers that everyone in my grade school wanted. They were just hardcover folders. We didn't have the money for that or a cabbage patch kid or any of those type of things. I never had those material things, but I didn't know it. I, I you know, I had a family doctor that would come to our house if he needed to. I didn't know my mom was paying $5 at a time if she had it. I remember walking to the bank with my mom and her putting $2 in, in the bank account, $1 for my brother and $1 for myself. But I never felt as if I didn't have anything um, because I had such a community that surrounded me that we all took care of each other. And I think that's missing a great deal now. Yeah. And I think often, I you know, I found it, I think personally, not being born in this country, coming being an immigrant. I think that, you know, when you look at the Eastern cultures, it's much more community-based, whereas I think in the Western culture, it's much more individualized. And when you do have that community aspect of it, and the resources or the funds are, might be limited, it's almost like we're all sharing from the same pool. So you're not as concerned. So if a single individual in that community in the village, so to speak, is struggling, the community feels like they're struggling. And we allocate a lot of resources when somebody might be going through a particular hardship. And then, you know, that shifts. And because of that, sometimes people don't even feel the need, right? If you don't feel scarcity, you don't get that mindset. Um, so that that's very interesting to me. What, which town did you grow up against? Sorry, did you mention that? I grew up in New London, Connecticut, and um, that's the home of the United States Coast Guard Academy, if anyone is listening and knows. So that's where it is. Also, little known fact, the movie Mystic Pizza, much of it was film, uh, filmed in my little town. There you go. I've told you everything that's real exciting about New London <laughs> in the last 30 seconds of this podcast. Love it. <laughs> I, you know, I, I love that that we're kind of bringing up this topic. And I think something that we don't talk about enough, right? We often, for the routine listeners of the show, know that we, we love talking about things on the cutting edge, right? Whether it's just us because we have to kind of satisfy our curiosity and our, our hunger to for progress and look forward, right? Whether it's about topics that are on the cusp, you know, it could be in, in medicine, pharmacologics, it could be interventional stuff like orthobiologics and PRP and quote unquote stem cells. Um, it could be uh, new protocols and practices in the health and wellness space. All these things, unfortunately, because of the, the healthcare model in this country, maybe not all, but a lot of these things tend to be a cash pays uh, or, you know, cash based model at this point. Um, and, and that can be very, very challenging for some people. You know, I'll just use my anecdote pers uh, personally from sports medicine Again, PRP, all these things, when people have chronic pain, they struggle with that and they don't have a lot of options or the traditional model, quote unquote, has failed them. And so to bridge that next gap, they have to pay for this and they don't have the resources. And then those who are further along or more scientific will say, well, why are you doing these treatments that aren't working or they haven't shown to have benefit? And somebody 
one of my, not necessarily mentors or colleagues who was a couple of years ahead of me once said to me, well, you know, it's like if you have the patient who comes to you who can't rub two pennies together and somebody's saying, well, you shouldn't do a steroid injection or, or something of that nature because that's going to cause more harm than good. That person doesn't care. They just want to be able to get out of pain so they can walk to that job, which might be several miles away and they can afford, you know, whatever for their family. And, and they can't even have the conversation of what these cutting edge treatments might be like, even if it is quote unquote, the right thing to do. And I think that we don't quite have the time to dive into all the aspects of, of medicine and, and the, um, the issues with it, but I'd love to kind of globally get your take, right? You're now on the policy advocacy side now, but really it all, I guess, did it start with you being on the flip side of the patient side, or you said you were prior to that working in DC still, um, and then you became a patient, so you saw that side of it, and now you're back on this side, or you know, you've seen both sides of the seesaw, so to speak. So. It it puts you in a space to get this 50,000 foot overview. And I'd love to kind of get your general thoughts on that. Sure. So before I worked um, at the the home builder, I worked at the home builders and then I worked at the horse council. So I always say I don't know how to build a house and horses don't like me. Um, But I was known in Washington as someone who could bring people together and build a, a community or an association. So that's how I I got to this job. I was four weeks into the job and then found out that I had cancer. But um, at the same time, it kind of just was a nice little over overlap um, for this. So I have been both the patient and the um, the advocate, and even more so, I would say it just happens as the older you get, you become more the patient. And you have to be the advocate at, at the same time for yourself and for others. So um, I think the thing that surprises me the most about medicine is that uh, it is, it's unbelievable to recognize that 83% of the patients that come to free and charitable clinics, those, so out of that 2 million, 83% of them, of them come from a working household. So someone has a job. Now, COVID obviously shifted that dynamic. Some of them are gig workers, but I always say we're very grateful to the people who drove the Ubers and delivered our food and worked the grocery stores because those were the people that kept us open during COVID. Um, those were also the people that cannot cannot afford a $4 medication. So nine times out of 10, when I'm talking to health policy people, they'll say, oh, well, the pharmacies have a $4 medication. Well, if you're making that choice between you're, you're working as a gig worker, you're making minimum wage, and in some states, that's not that much money, or you're a waitress and a waiter, and if no one's coming into the restaurant, you're not getting your tips, uh, you're, you're really making a hard choice between getting your medicine. And that's not talking about things like insulin or other things that cost even more money or some of these treatments like you're talking about that, that we don't even have those conversations. They're, they're not even there. Um, and on top of that, as we talk about clinical trials and we talk about other sources of medicine, we have a patient demographic that the clinical trials really would like to, to see, the, un, the uninsured, the underserved, the uh, disenfranchised population. And yet we don't even have a good way to explain to our patient population what a clinical trial is because everything is written at a 12th or college grade reading level. So we can't have those times to sit down to our patients and say, this may help you. And I bring up a clinical trial because that's what saved my life. A clinical trial is the reason why I'm still sitting here with inflammatory breast cancer and I'm not supposed to be alive. But trying to explain what that's like to a patient is so difficult. And so I understand when people say to you as a provider, 
well, why are you doing this? Or why are you having this conversation if they can't afford it or they don't need to? What I appreciate is when providers do have those conversations with patients, because I believe that all patients should have all information that's before them in order to make the decisions that they need to make. I think that also, if we're going to change our healthcare system, we need to make sure that Patients have every right to advocate for themselves any way they need to, or they have someone who's helping them advocate. Half the time, our patients don't even understand that there's patient advocates at hospitals that can sit and work with them, or that they can call our office and we will help advocate for them when they're in a situation. Or if you don't know or understand the language, to find a translator to help you understand what's happening, or to just say, I'm sorry, doc, I don't know what you're saying. Could you bring it down to my level? And most doctors appreciate that. You're busy as providers. You have to go from one place to the next. But I know you would really welcome a patient saying to you, I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. I think that, um, and I think one of the things that you're doing beautifully and that I like about this is that you are opening up that door to take away that fear for the patients. And if I could change one thing, it would be the fact that the other day I was um, on the Hill and someone told me that I speak uh, too plainly um, when I have these conversations. <laughs> and I said that the, our patients speak at a fourth grade reading level. It is my job to speak where patients can understand what I'm saying at all times. But I also feel that it's my job to speak so providers can understand what I'm saying all times too. So I can help providers also say, okay, doc, it's just me. Let, can we can we just talk regular because I don't know what you're saying to me and um, break down kind of that that wall that exists that I think is is nothing that anybody wants to have. It's just we get in our routines and we're going. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's so many awesome things right there that I want to follow up. A couple of things. I think the last piece, being able to bridge talking patient talk to provider talk back and forth just seamlessly. It's almost like speaking different languages right? Being able to go back and forth. I find it particularly challenging if you are working in academic medicine where you have to be quote unquote more polished, right? You have to use the appropriate terminology because again, if you're educating to the next generation, I was telling you guys offline, um, you want to teach the appropriate terminology. So how do you communicate? I think I recently read a piece, maybe it was from Sensible Medicine, Darsh, I'm not sure, but we were, somebody had, was making an argument. It's like, why do we even, why do we even, um, you know, make this difficult terminology in medical school. It's not necessary. If ultimately we're going to end up communicating, well, if we're doing it for the patients and ultimately we have to communicate and bring it down to a fourth, fifth grade level, whatever it is. I mean, we all know what we're saying. Like, why can't we just stay at that level? Because the other point that that you brought up is often, you know, patients are afraid to ask because we're going so fast. The provider doesn't even have to have to have a seat. So patients just have this sense of urgency automatically a personal anecdote comes to mind is a couple of years ago, my mom had a heart attack and we were sitting in the hospital. And again, I think that she's lucky that she has a healthcare provider in the family and I'm sitting next to her at bedside. Now, after this, she had a pretty big heart attack. She's doing okay now, thankfully, but uh, her ejection fraction was very suppressed, right? So somewhere in the 25% range. And for those who don't know, an average is 60%. There is no such thing as 100%. 60% is really 55 to 60% is really kind of the upper end of that. So 25%, I mean, you're, you're operating about 50% capacity. So she needed to put on this, this vest, a defibrillator, all the time. And so the representative from the company had come uh, while she's still in the hospital um, in the, um, oh my God, uh, the step-down unit, right? So which is basically right after the ICU, you're sitting in the cardiac unit. And 
the the representative from the company is going through this uh, defibrillator, explaining to my mom, this is how you put it on. You have to make sure it's not wet, blah, 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 a million instructions. And I'm quietly listening to the whole process. My mom just nodding. Yes, yes, got it, got it. Yes, got it, got it, got it. About 10 minutes or so. Uh, and the representative, okay, so you understand? My mom said, yes, I understand. And she looked at me and I looked at her and I was like, what did she say? And she, then she laughed and she goes, I have no idea. Like literally in front of the representative, right? But in a different language. Um, and, and my mom speaks English well. She's been working, she worked in retail for quite some time. Uh, but had I not been there during that visit, that rep would have said, you got it. My mom said, I would have got it. And that person, I mean, they asked, they asked, they did their job. What, what else can you ask of this person, right? So, uh, that, sorry, a bit lengthy uh, of a story, but I think that, that that happens from time and time again. So yes, I love it when my patients say, I don't get it. Ask me again, or, or you know, explain it to me one more time, explain it a different way, or I don't understand. I love that. Um, so, so I think that that is very, very critical. And, and I just wanted to share that part. Well, I'm so glad. I'm so glad to hear that your mother's doing better. So thank you for sharing that with us too. And I'm so grateful that you were with her. And I think you, it's interesting you bring up this conversation about in academia, uh, because we have student run clinics across the United States of America, and they're, they're having that same challenge, because I always ask their, their preceptors or, or their advisors, if one of the goals for this country under Healthy People 2030, is that we take down the barrier of understanding between provider and patient, like as a country, Someone set the goal that more patients need to understand what their providers are saying to them. And we have so far, just in case anyone is watching and uh, listening to this, or, or even if you know, we've, we've failed so far, just so you all know, we are not doing well. The benchmark has not been moved. Then why are we continuing doing the same thing? Why do we have to continue down this process? Why are you you in academic situations or our student-run free clinics being held to that standard in academia that our patients can't understand, but yet later you're going to get a failing mark anyway. So that is one of the places where I find we have a breakdown. Someone in Washington makes a rule. No one has told the, the universities, colleges, or institutions that this is really the rule. No one's told our patients that we want this rule, and yet everybody thinks they're doing what they need to be doing. And yet the providers and the patients both, both walk away feeling disheartened. And I feel that what concerns us at the National Association of Free and Charitable Clinics, and one of the things we focused on a great deal during COVID was um, working not just on mental health for our patients, but mental health for our providers. Um, not just because you were overworked during COVID and, and there were pizza parties. And I always jokingly say that I think that um, I, sh I should have uh, been in charge. I would have gotten you guys some sneaker deals. I think you probably needed those more than you needed pizza parties, though we're grateful for the pizza parties. But um, I think that as we're looking, we really wanted to talk about your mental health conversations with each other and with um, how you can address some of these concerns and where changes can you make. But it wasn't just enough for us to give you a place to sit and talk. It was us working with those universities and hospital systems of, okay, your providers had said that these were the challenges. What are we going to do over the next three to five years to implement the changes that, that your providers have said? And, and I'm thrilled to say that there have been some really great uh, universities that have decided to, to work on that and to move some of those um, moving forward. Definitely Berkeley is, is one that's moving the, that needle 
forward on how they're going to take some of their student uh, suggestions and provider suggestions on how we can make some uh, conversations a little bit easier for our patients. I, you know, another one is diabetes, uh, hypertension, when people say, well, you just need to eat better exercise um, for, for our patients. And I know that you all like to talk about wellness in, in preventative medicine as well. You know, one of the things that our clinics have really focused on, and it came out of the student-run free clinics, is that um, many of our patients live in food apartheid locations. So no longer food deserts, but food apartheid, where companies will not go in and build grocery stores in specific mm -hmm. neighborhoods across across the country. And um, our, our student clinics have really identified teaching opportunities to teach people on how they can eat and go to a dollar store. But we took it a step further and it was not only can you buy so much at a dollar store, but here's an actual cookbook. So when you go home, you know how to cook and you know what the here's how much a, a serving looks like for you. Share that with the people in your community, please. It's on our website. But here's some copies because not everybody has a computer and not everybody has a phone line and not everybody can. If you are somebody who only used the library as the way to talk to your doctor, guess what you were not doing during COVID when the library pulled down? You weren't doing a telehealth medicine. You didn't have a mm -hmm. place to do that. But we've been finding those ways to kind of bridge that gap, but also to bridge it in maybe not relying so much electronically. Um, which is, I know, very hard too, especially for you all who have to, or, you know, you, you're expected to write and use it in your EMR. You're supposed to write everything down in those notes. But if you're an uninsured or underserved patient, you know, you may have just a, a phone that's given to you by the government. You may not have an iPhone in order for you to have that information. So we found that sometimes going back to hand, just printed documents make a big difference for people too. It also allows a bit more communication for the provider if you're both looking at the same document when you're talking to them. Yeah, absolutely. Because it gives you a sense of <clears throat> what are they focusing on as well, right? Because that's when you're learning that feedback that that earlier you and I both were kind of talking about where you're asking the patient, hey, you get it, right? And the patient says, yeah. But if you show that document to them, be like, hey, like, here's what I'm looking at. And the patient's like, oh, yeah, I'm not even on the same like line. Like, you know, what are we focusing on? So I think that's, it can give me, at least when I do that, gives me a sense of how their, their thought process is. And I think that that's pretty helpful. You know, another point that earlier you brought up about lack of education when patients are coming in, right? They're not informed. You know, again, if they don't have access to the internet, they haven't Googled their specific pathology. They don't know what hypertension Absolutely. or cardiovascular disease is. So they literally might come to you for the very first time and hear that term. So you might say cardiovascular disease and they're like, what? What does that even mean, cardiovascular disease? Exactly. This happened to me last year uh, during my final year of training where I think I had a patient who was a little overweight and we were talking about knee arthritis and how excess load can cause, you know, uh, or excess weight can cause more load on the knees and then down the road, that's going to make it much more challenging for them to be pain-free and have better function, et cetera, et cetera. And when we started talking about this person's diet, I mean, there were so many red flags left and right. But what's interesting is this patient had no clue that these were not good healthy foods and this wasn't the right thing to do, you know. And prior to that, most of the time I tell, you know, when we have these conversations, again, we tell people eat well and exercise. Yes, that's not actionable. Mm -hmm. But I used to remember specifically saying most, most of us know what eat well and exercise means, right? Eat healthy means. Then I had this encounter and I was like, oh my God, this person has no clue. And how could that be? How could you be living in 2022 and not know? 
And everything that you just spoke about is like, maybe that person doesn't have social media. Probably not. Um, maybe they don't have, even have a, a cell phone, right? And they don't have access to all these things. And they've, they've never seen the, the food my plate or the food pyramid or really any yep. variation of that. And um, that was eye-opening and humbling experience for me. And I love that you recognized it and are, are thinking about that. I, uh, my coworker who works, uh, she, her, her grandmother is from Peru and uh, her grandmother had some of those same conversations with the doctor. And um, Ariana finally had to say to her grandma, you, Abuela, you can't eat a tortilla every single meal. And her, her abuela said to her, but that's how I was brought up. That's what we do in our culture. And so also taking into those conversations of when people come here from a different country, um, you know, white people like me, let's just put it on it, have to understand that there are other cultures and other things that have to be taught and taken into consideration. And how do we allow people to eat what they're used to in their culture, but then pull back on other, other conversations. And then also, uh, what does exercise mean if you live in a neighborhood that's not safe to walk in? What, what that, that means something very different for someone who lives in a, you know, a middle-class white suburban neighborhood than it does for many of my black patients who, who live someplace where it's not safe and they're not going to go outside. And until we start looking at healthcare, um, and, 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 and then I know this is the one that gets me in trouble when I go to Capitol Hill. When I say, until we start looking at healthcare as the entire spectrum of healthcare, healthy neighborhoods, safety, making sure that there's broadband for everyone, making sure that there's food, that everyone understands how to make it and understand it, to speak in a way that people understand. Until we start doing that as a country, we are not going to have a healthy population because there are people who are afraid to go outside. So they're not going to exercise. They're, how can they? And sh nor should we ask them to if it's, a, if it's unsafe for them to go and exercise. Um, but also I would say even for myself growing up, um, I will tell you that I was a kid of the 70s and 80s, 80s primarily. We never once looked at a food chart, ever. I didn't even know what that was. I had no idea. My family was a family that, it, I don't eat hamburger now in my life because we had so much hamburger growing up as a child. Obviously, we didn't have more. I now know why, but I didn't. Um, but there is a whole population of people that have never understood that, have never been taught that. And then when you add diet culture into all of these conversations as well, then you're seeing people that are going on the spectrum of, and I, I was the queen of the, the yo-yo diet. I was great if I didn't eat anything. Oh, it was great if I ate this many calories. I was great if I walked 50 miles a day, but no one ever sat me down and said, this is how much you should walk or exercise. These are the cup levels you should eat. And you would think I would have known that. You would have thought, like you said, when you sit and say, but what I tell people, the first diet I was put on, I was eight years old. And do you know what it was? It was a cookie diet. It was a diet where a doctor thought it was a good idea to give me a cookie, one for breakfast, one for lunch, and one for dinner. I was eight, and that was the first experience that I had. And if you speak to all the girls in New London, Connecticut, we all did the same exact thing between eight and 10. And so life has changed so much. And it's so odd when I look at people like you, both of your faces are quite hysterical to see yeah. that just for the record <laughs> <Very> um, <laughs> as providers to see that that was someone's um, experience. But I think that also brought me to understanding how can I help the next generation or the next group of people get healthier? And what does that mean um, for, for people as well? 
Yeah, you know, a lot of what you're talking about, to me, seems like a lack of transparency within the entire realm. Just like how you said mm-hmm. there, you know, we need to expand the spectrum of healthcare. So, you know, as residents, oh, well, I was, all tomorrow's not too long ago, or I am, um, we complain a lot, right? About the work hours, <laughs> about lack of autonomy sometimes, program dependence, certain things. And I think at that moment, as we're getting our education, you know, for me at least, I start to think of my patients and start to think about those things that I need to talk about, and maybe on the same level of those complaints and maybe having that mm-hmm. connection. <clears throat> but then we get a lifestyle upgrade. We get a pay upgrade, right? When we become an attending and we often move locations. You know, when I trained in Philadelphia versus now being in Hershey, I mean, it is a completely different language I use with my patients, right? I mean, I'm seeing completely different things. And so, as doctors and as providers, as we go through our journey, we can lose that sense of communication and clarity with our patients and that transparency. But I also think about it from each relationship. So not only the doctor-patient relationship, but also who's running the hospitals, right? I mean, we're having mm-hmm. MBAs and, and business administrators running the hospitals, but then the doctors and the PAs and the nurses and the students are running the medicine. But it seems like that inefficiency in healthcare has just always been there. And like you said, nothing's really changing. You know, we, we know there needs to be a change. We look at other countries and we see that there needs to be change. But yet nothing has really been done. And I think about it all the time that no one's ever asked me about my experience and how we can make encounters better, right? No one's ever asked me about how I can talk to patients better or what we can do to make it more efficient. And I rarely see consulting happen in medicine, in hospitals, even bringing external consultants. And if there are, a lot of it's kind of just focused on the money and the business side of it. Mm -hmm. You know, being in rehab, all I see is the admission list and how can we get more patients through the door? How can we discharge faster? And so again, it comes down to transparency and even having that conversation with patients when they say, hey, I don't get it, or the clinical trials, I almost sometimes get scared of even asking if they understand sometimes because I don't even know how to explain it. I don't even have the education to understand how insurance models truly work and if their drugs will get covered or not. Um, so I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's a long-winded way of me asking you, is, is there change on the horizon or what truly needs to be done in order to have this transparency on all levels so that we can all be part of a system that understands everyone's roles and kind of the, what the solutions, if I can say, um, might be? Sure. Oh, well, how long is your podcast again? Because I've got a lot of suggestions, but um, I think I think I can wrap up one of the things pretty simply. I was sitting in a meeting on Capitol Hill uh, prior to the Affordable Care Act and a staff member, we had been there for a very long time hashing out deals like who liked what, who didn't like what. And there's the first transparency conversation. It it wasn't just two plans that everybody decided on. There were hundreds of different healthcare plans and they all came from an insurance company or a policymaker, but not from doctors, mm-hmm. not from, you know, not from the medical provider perspective. Um, and the uh, staffer ran in and said, I've got it. Everyone in the world can just pay $200 and then the, everyone will get insurance. And everyone's sitting around and they're like nodding their head. And so finally I said, well, first off, where did you get that? Like, where'd you get $200? Like, that's an interesting number. I'm assuming it must be somewhere. And he said, well, that's just what I pay in my, out of my pay, my paycheck. And so even on the the policymaker side, there was not the understanding that 
well, Congress pays for money behind that. And not everyone has insurance from an employer and not everyone has the money. Not everyone has $200. And so I think the first place that we have to understand is that our healthcare system in our country is not just one and done. Our healthcare system is basically a ball of twine that we just keep having to separate. So we have private insurance and we have government insurance, but those two things are mixed together. And many people don't recognize that the same people that are working on your um, pharmacy benefits are the same people that are working for the private companies are working for the government at the same time. And some of those rates, so Medicare rates and some insurer rates are the same, but in other insurer rates, they're not. And it gets very boring to people. But if somebody just said, okay, not everyone gets the same exact thing, but these people get the same exact thing, people would start to understand that the transparency becomes harder and harder because let's just be honest, money makes decisions in this country and people give money to political action committees and they make decisions. So one, there needs to be more work on bringing in providers to have conversations about what changes need to be made. Second, I think that the insurance companies, the pharmacy benefit managers and hospitals, that conversation that you're having, there really needs to have that patient experience or that patient voice and the provider voice. So at the free and charitable clinics, and again, we're not funded by the federal government. So we can do some of these things easier than other people, but we ask our providers what will make things better? What have you seen that has caused a problem? But we also ask our patients on that. And it's not focused on, you know, I don't even know if you all have 15 minutes a patient any longer, but, you know, whatever number is given to you at how quickly you need to see people. And I think that's one of the other areas is, I think you mentioned it before, a lot of things are moved on how quickly we can get people in and out and how much money are we saving or utilizing. And, you know, my, my husband, uh, in September, he fell um, in our home and he uh, smacked his face on our granite countertop and then went backwards and hit his head again. I tell you this story because my husband was, he had six different doctors, none of them spoke to each other and he was overprescribed for blood pressure medicine and his blood pressure dropped so fast that that's why he passed out. You know, 10 days later in a hospital in the ICU, then down to the step down unit, he had broken both of his jaws and we still had not seen a, a um, plastic surgeon because the hospital didn't have one because nobody knew who was supposed to call the plastic surgeon on in the team. And fun, finding for me, recognizing that I needed someone who had done this for a long time, I needed the patient advocate to kind of come and tell me you know, this is what's going on, that it got so much that I finally just walked up to the CEO's office and just sat there until somebody talked to me, which again, being a disruptor is well, you don't have a problem to do. Most people would never do something like that. But that's the question I asked is where's the transparency? Where's a book that I can look up to say, who do I call? I'll call anybody. I don't want to bother your poor doctor that's coming in at 630 in the morning and has a bunch of other patients to see. I can call someone, give it to me. And um, I remember the provider, the CEO looking at me and said, oh, that's a good idea. Maybe we should do that. And I thought I can't be the the, the smartest person in this room. Um, and I know that I'm not. So I think that the benefit of transparency on all fronts, sometimes that becomes uncomfortable because transparency can also show where we're not doing things well. And we are in America very conditioned to showing only the things that we do very, very well. And so I think it's okay to sometimes say, we're not doing things well. You know, example for us would be 
that we recognized that some of our clinics were not taking blood pressures correctly. Uh, they were, you know, the patient was walking in and they were taking the blood pressure right away. And we, there was no sit down. And so we implemented it in a pilot of, of studies of some of our clinics, a five minute sit down time for the patient to get acclimated to know, which is standard practice I'm now understanding. But when you're in a, a free clinic and you have all of these people and they're all really worked up. And we found that just at these places alone, by recognizing and being transparent that our EKG numbers were off the chart because we were ordering them left and right because of everyone's blood pressure was through the roof, that we were able to cut them by 50% by just saying, we must be doing something wrong on our end. I mean, 50% in 12 months to cut down your EKG rates at 13 facilities across the country is a big deal, but it was because we were willing to be transparent and it helped make our patients feel more comfortable when they came in the door too. But sometimes I think it's that scary thing that especially hospital administrators get nervous about. You know, another word that I think it's an important to throw out there is accountability too, right? You mentioned that we need to bring more providers into those conversations, into the rooms, right? With the CEOs, with the administrators. Absolutely. I've heard this time and time again, and again, I'm very early in my career, but I have been invested in this space for multiple reasons. You know, my medical school debt is astronomical. I think the business of medicine is fascinating. I think really all kinds of business, but again, medicine, it is what it is. It is a business, particularly in this country. The other thing is Mm -hmm. providers don't have the patience or the desire to learn it. And even if they got into the room, if they don't speak that language, if they don't understand the business, if they don't understand PBMs and GPOs and all that kind of stuff, and if I throw that out and that doesn't like that doesn't resonate with you and you don't know what it is, like nobody's gonna take the time. The admin folks aren't gonna sit there and take the time and wanna have to explain it to you. Just like on our end, when an administrator says, Oh, you can't order this test, or an insurance company says you can't order this test, and we have to do a peer-to-peer, and it is so incredibly frustrating that I have to try to explain clinical medicine to somebody who doesn't have a clue of why a test is appropriate. So that frustration is shared on the other side as well. So I am going to call out my colleagues and my provider says, we have to understand that as well. Otherwise, you know, this concept of earning a seat at the table comes to mind from something I've heard Eric Chris speak on in a different context. But um, I think that that's so critical. And, you know, a book that I will throw out there that I recently completed uh, Marty McCary is the price we pay, right? He talks about the healthcare system and he's written on this uh, time and time again. Um, so that's a, a really good resource that people can look at and just gives you a little bit of insight of why the healthcare system is, you know, again, almost 19% of a GDP and it's just really not sustainable. Uh, but if it, if we don't educate ourselves, then I don't really know if we can sit there and complain that, hey, we're not in those rooms because we'll, if we get in those rooms, then what? Right. If we can't have the conversations and we can't mm-hmm. speak onto how to right actually make change, if we can't advocate your word there, right, for our colleagues, for ourselves, uh, really, there's no point in going to that room, right? Um, so I think that that that's something that's also important to highlight. I think that's a great point. I think that's something that's very disheartening to me that you are hmm. not taught that in school. That you're, I, I, you know, and I, I agree with everything that you just said because. I, also being a woman in Washington, D.C., talk about earning a seat at the table. But I had to find, I had to do the same thing. I had to go out and find the books and learn that. And so that's why we're trying to build a system where 
I, I'll spend time with I'll spend time with people on the phone and explain what those words mean for you. You can look on our website. We have glossaries. We have information because um, if you don't know, you can't make the changes. But also, I find it so ironic. And and again, I I'm here. You guys, I'm good at one thing. I'm really good at talking. My dad has said, find something you're good at and get someone to pay you for it. Um, but I'm also good at some logical jumps. Now, I'm not great at math and I'm not a great writer. I will fully admit that. But I don't understand how the business of medicine is not explained to you if you're expected to, to be in a setting. Only because as a provider, you're only as good as the information that you have. And I think that it's a disservice to you that when you go through med school, it's not taught. Um, I also think that for a, from a, you know, perspective of I, I go to classes, even if I don't know, and I have a, you know, I have someone who's in the medical field, teach me things. And then there's times where I just don't know. So I just have to hire someone to help me. So on the other side, I would say to the hospitals, you're going to have to hire that liaison that really speaks both of the languages or make it a position. So that person who does know both of those things and can explain the business to the business and then to you all. But I, I, I do think that's disheartening that you're not taught that in school as well. Yeah. My initial thought you guys have to learn a lot, though, so it's not fair. And I don't didn't expect you to learn one more thing. But I also think that would be an interesting class for those of uh, those people who want to learn. Yeah. It. And so, again, I don't know if I'm stealing, again, this concept from Dr. Marty McCary, if he talks about it or if this just came to me now, I won't take credit for it. But, you know, my initial thought was, yeah, you know, where are we going to put that in? Right. You already have four years of medical school and then anywhere from three to eight years of residency training, which really no other country does that and there's so much to learn and even after you do that most people don't feel competent enough and they want to do another year of training and fellowship i did that and then i realized going to my first year of practice i'm like oh my god now i have no oversight now i really don't know anything and now if you know just imposter syndrome at its highest but there is so much that we learn so much rope memorization so many pathologies that we don't need to know if the like off the top of my head anymore, right? You could quickly Google something. Like, I don't know why I had to memorize all the different types of renotubular acidosis. Like, I'm never going to use that, right? And and those type of, all these genetic disorders that you have to memorize and just you, you take the test and you completely forget them. Maybe 40 years ago when you didn't have the internet or something, you kind of had to know. So when you saw some type of presentation, you could quickly say, oh, okay, maybe it might be this. That's not the case anymore. Everybody's got, Again, not everybody. We've talked about this, but a lot of us in healthcare are somewhat privileged, and you know mm -hmm. we've got that, or we've got access to a computer. Certainly, do at work, you can quickly put some symptoms in. We've got up to date within the EMR. Things are built in, and so I think you know where nobody's suggesting you add on to a curriculum, but there is still a lot of mm -hmm. jargon and junk in there that we can take out. Uh, that this would be far more valuable because not everybody's going to be doing those nephrology concepts, the genetic stuff. But 100% of the providers coming out are going to be applying these these business of medicine concepts to their uh, practice. It doesn't matter really what type of practice you're in, academic, private, really, you know what I mean? It's, it's going to happen. So, Yeah, it must be hard to be a, a provider now. Um, I feel for, for you and the providers that I, I hear from, um, because, you know, you could have picked any other job. You chose to become a provider because you wanted to make a difference in lives of people. 
That that I mean, let's be honest. And so I think that it, it must be difficult when you, the same way it's difficult for me when I run into roadblocks for patients. Um, on the other side, it must be very difficult for you because you have the roadblock of the business side, and then you have a roadblock of your patients maybe not understanding. And then obviously non-compliant pa patients that we have too, that we have to understand why they're non-compliant. And then all the other stuff that you have to deal with, like just a regular life, you know, families and, and everything that you have, it must be difficult. But I thank you for what you do because you chose to do this because you wanted to make people healthier. And, and I know that a lot of people don't remember to thank you. So before we go any farther, I just want to make sure that's on the record. I want to thank you for what you do. Thank you. Too. I, I'd love to kind of transition now and talk about maybe more actionable things, maybe strategies, tactics, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Something you mentioned earlier is that People have, when they're in the hospital or loved ones in the hospital, there is somebody to advocate for you. Maybe you're not the type of person who can advocate for yourself or for your loved one. You don't just have that personality. How, how can people find that person, patients? Um, what are they even called? Um, talk about that a little sure. bit. So if you're at, if you're in a hospital, let's say first, let's go to the hospital system. If you're in a hospital and you're, um, and you're, uh, provide yourself or your loved one is either in the ER or in a room, you can ask from the nurse, the doctor, there's might be a phone sheet um, right there for you, or I just always hit zero on the phone and say, I'd like a patient advocate to come and help me. And they'll ask what room that you're in. Now, a patient advocate may not be available right that moment, depending on when they'll, but they'll write it down. I would say also though, if you don't have a patient advocate, you called at eight o'clock in the morning and at noon, someone hasn't come and seen you, pick up the phone again, press zero again and ask for the patient advocate to come and see you. Now there's not, you know, they may be able to put you on a list or they may be able to help you, but there's definitely something there. Also, I would also tell you, please, please be very kind to your nurses. It is amazing to me how much information I received from the nurses from my that were there or the nurses that would say, the doctor's coming in at this time, let's write down your questions for them. And I or I will tell the doctor your questions before you come in. So please make sure um, that you do that. And then finally, I would also just bring a notebook. I know that that's a hard thing. I would bring a notebook to every doctor's appointment I had. I'd bring a notebook to every every time I'm in a hospital and I would write things down. I know there's the old joke that you lose 83% of your hearing when a doctor tells you what your diagnosis is. Um, every single appointment that I go to, before I go to the doctors, I have a list of all my medicines written down. I have a list of what my questions are. And then I have a section that says, this is what the doctor said. And then I ask the doctor, if I leave here and I don't know what I'm supposed to do, who do I call in your office? So I think there's two sets of patient advocates. There's one in the hospital situation. There's one where you're the patient advocate for yourself. And then when you leave, you can always contact the National Association of Free and Charitable Clinics, our website. And in states, there are patient advocate organizations all across the United States that you can just um, contact us or you could if you do have the internet you can google that but again if you know one of the other easiest places to go would be to go to your library if you're ever stuck go to a library and your librarian will help you find a patient advocate in your area as well 
I love that. That's that's very, very good advice. And I didn't even realize that last part you just mentioned about going to the librarian um, and getting that help mm-hmm. to find one, you know, in the outpatient setting. Um, but I absolutely love it when the patients have a notebook in front of them. Um, they're, you know, especially in the rehab hospital, any setting, like you said, when your husband had a fall, there were so many different providers coming through the door. And it's not even just providers, but even within the team, there are so many different people. You know, nurses don't necessarily work every single day from a Monday to Friday. So you may have, right. you know, you're definitely going to have a different nurse at night, you know, or the night shift nurse. But yep. then on that Tuesday or Wednesday, it could be a completely different person. And so it can get blurry when somebody is sick, you know, and mm-hmm. they, they, they're not in their environment and they're vulnerable and they're trying to keep this information, but they're also afraid of kind of asking some questions possibly. But having that notebook, I think, as that security blanket a little bit to write down the questions. I have so so many times that patients say, oh, I forgot. I forgot what I was going to ask. Say, write it down when it comes to you. We'll get to it tomorrow then. Or let the nurse know and they can always yep. contact me. So I think having that notebook is incredibly, incredibly useful, um, especially after they after you leave the hospital when it comes to discharge and all those follow-up questions come and you get your discharge paperwork and you say, wait, am I supposed to take a shower with this incision or am I not? Or when are my follow-ups at what time and where are the numbers? Having that all organized will just make the patient's life a hundred times easier. So I absolutely, absolutely agree with that. Um, I do want to ask about your uh, clinic, so the NAFC. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. would have a, a crude understanding exactly of what free clinics entail. But do you mind just going into detail for, you know, exactly what, what type of patients, you know, who can go to a free clinic and what can they really expect out of it? Sure. Uh, so I will tell you one thing about free and, free and charitable clinics. We are the community's response to healthcare. So each of our facilities across the United States of America will, will uh, uh, deal with chronic disease management every single one of them, hypertension, diabetes, uh, COPD, anything like that. Um, And then based on community needs, we'll find that uh, facilities have different types of specialty care that they may work on. Um, For example, I always tell this this story in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, 10 years ago, the AIDS clinic started closing down. And the free clinic in Kansas City, Missouri recognized that the community needed an AIDS provider a real AIDS provider, and they built up an AIDS um, provider system. Now, we don't have that in Biloxi, Mississippi, after Katrina came through. We found that we were having more patients that were having mental health challenges, depression, anxiety, as well as asthma. So those clinics in those um, situations have a different specialty. But you can address hypertension, diabetes, any type of chronic disease, Majority of our clinics, 50% of them now have dental care that also works with their their locations. Um, 60% have mental health care that work um, with their patients as well. They all will have a referral list and connections to specialists and doctors that you can go to. Additionally, they will address social determinants of health so that that food insecurity, transportation, work efforts, for them as well. Um, We have many of our facilities are what's called under one roof. So you go to the clinic and then you can go next door to the food pantry and then down the road where someone can help you with your bills. Um, So we're really building out those conversations. I think that there is this misconception that free and charitable clinics are down dark alleys and that they're STI clinics only. And um, there are STI clinics that exist and that are serve an amazing um, 
population and, and need, but our clinics are that more of that primary care and specialty care that we see. Who primarily comes to our clinics are the uninsured um, individuals and people that are 100 to 300 or 400% poverty. Um, but I will tell you that that is going to change after May 11th. So after the public health emergency um, is is ended because of COVID and after Medicaid unwinding where some states had expanded Medicaid and the government matched them for their Medicaid when COVID was happening, the government's pulling that back. So, so many people received access to Medicaid and now they won't. So we're looking at in the next three months, anywhere from four to 10 million more Americans are going to be uninsured and they will stay that way for the next 12 months until states decide how they're going to handle this. So we're looking at numbers that are pre-ACA numbers. So ACA is the Affordable Care Act, and we went from 50 million Americans down to 29 million Americans. And frankly, for some reason that we're uninsured, and for some reason we celebrated at 29 million um, uninsured, whereas we, we obviously at the free clinic world said that's 29 million too many uninsured. We're now looking at you know, if there's 10 million or you're getting right back up to that 39 million Americans that are going to be uninsured again, we're expecting an onslaught of patients to come and need help at our locations. You mentioned 13 states. Is that, am I, did I hear that correctly? That the, the clinics are primarily in 13 states or all across the country? Oh, no, we're in 50 states. Five, all, all 50 states. Fantastic. All 50 states, 1400 clinics. Wow. Amazing. I don't know where I got that number 13 from. But, um, you know, I, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. Earlier, you, you talked about how, you know, at least the concept of getting a seat at the table, particularly for women in Washington. And mm -hmm. we're kind of on this thread of talking about equity and healthcare, and we've skipped different topics. I'd love to get, you know, your take and your experience for that. You've talked about how you've been an advocate at Capitol Hill several times, talking about policy change. What are some major barriers that you've encountered when it comes to this specifically, this topic of equity, healthcare, affordable healthcare, really for all those, you know, ensuring those 29 million people who are maybe now 39 million that we're expecting to be after May 11th. Is that the day? Yes. Yeah. So after close to 40 million that we're expecting. What are some specific barriers that you've encountered and then maybe even have been amplified, particularly because of you being a female? Well, I'd say the first one and the most heartbreaking one was after George Floyd was murdered. Our board of directors made an incredibly strong statement um, against the murder of George Floyd and um, police brutality and how uh, this is a public racism as a public health issue. Not only did we make a statement, our organization uh, stopped on a dime, changed our entire board of directors makeup. We also hired a diversity, um, equity and inclusion uh, expert to review every single policy and procedure at free and charitable clinics across the United States to ensure that they all came from an equity lens. Um, from that, uh, soon after there was uh, the insurrection at the Capitol building, I have been very vocal um, on both of those issues and I started to receive death threats at my home. Um, people tried to break into my home, people broke into our office, people had threatened my life because single-handedly I was going to ruin America by ensuring that everyone had access to healthcare. I wish I was A, that powerful. 
um, because if I could single-handedly do something, I would have done it already. Um, but B, also, uh, I guess if you're asking me the biggest question is just the polarization and politicalization making healthcare politics. I think that um, where this country has put politics over people and there are two very strong sides and they don't mix very well. And that has caused um, a breakdown in equity. I think um, also there has been, um, we are incredibly stuck in our, our country into white supremacist systems that have worked and have worked and we don't want to change. Um, in those. So I think that that has impacted how healthcare is organized in our country. Additionally, I think the other big thing that that we're finding with with many people is just that concept of it's how we've always done it. So that's how we always need to do it. Um, during COVID, there was this massive and, and, and again, please excuse the non-medical providers speaking to medical providers who know this better than anything. Um, but there was this amazing push that we should do everything differently. We need to understand that healthcare is different in our country and how do we, we value our providers and we'll do things different. So we had people, um, you know, really supporting our work and recognizing that to make it more equitable and to break down the concerns that people had against getting a vaccine, we needed to, uh, set up clinics at bus stops because if people, if they don't have a car, they can't get to where the vaccination center is or recognize that we can't set up these massive vaccination centers in the middle of, of a city when half of the people live in a rural area and no one's getting near them. So also how do we take a, a parking lot and turn it into a place for not just COVID tests and exams, but also a hotspot for children to do their homework and how do we pick up food and we really had this amazing push from hospital systems and insurance companies and philanthropy that we're all going to change the face of healthcare, and yet um, be, to make it more equitable. And then now that I guess COVID's over, everything's going back to the way that it was before. And um, it is very heartbreaking to see that we we're able to move the needle. We're able to show data-wise in all of us, we can all show data-wise the growth and the changes that we had, whether it be through telemedicine, whether it be through increased mental health visits, whether it be with people, you know, staying more, our patients stayed more compliant because they were nervous about things that they were doing, or it just, they felt more connected to their providers when we changed how the providers looked like the patients coming to, to them and talked and there was more translation services. And now everything's going back to, well, before COVID, it was done this way. And um, so I would say that that's my biggest fear, that equity is, unless we are going to continue to charge head on and say that the way we used to do it was broken and the way that we used to provide healthcare and access was not working, for everyone, but working for a select few and, and we keep breaking down those walls. If we go back to where we were, we're never gonna make, make those changes. Mm -hmm. Do I think that people are listening? I think that frankly, it, um, it took 15 votes to get a speaker of the House of Representatives um, and that should show you what's happening healthcare policy-wise in Washington DC right now. It is, we have 
two very divided sides of the aisle. No one's going to agree on, on what's going to happen there. And so it will have to come from the grassroots effort up in order to make those necessary changes. You know, one of the things that, that really kind of bothered me or I have a gripe with is when things have kind of just always been the same. When we know there should be a change, mm -hmm. when we know instinctually, you know, inside of us that there should be something different. And, you know, yesterday was the Super Bowl. I'm from Philadelphia and I was in Philly, uh -huh. right? And you, you, you see these videos of people flipping cars and, you know, Philadelphia fans are known to kind of just destroy the city. And people ask, well, why is that? Why do they do that? And honestly, the answer is it's it's because it's always been like that. There, That's the default. Right. There's no way of right. really kind of thinking about how, well, how do we change that? And, you know, all Philadelphians know that it's messed up. We should probably change. We probably shouldn't destroy our city, you know? So <laughs> it's like, you know, we all have this understanding of what the right thing to do is. And, you know, you started this episode out talking about the way you grew up and having this tight-knit community, this togetherness, this social mm -hmm. togetherness. And you have a knack for bringing people together, whether it's on the Hill, whether, you know, you're a CEO mm -hmm. for the NAFC, uh, bringing patients together, bringing ideas together. What is your secret? Because I think what's important and a, a great solution to all of this is we all kind of have to have a role, right? As a resident, as an attending, um, whether you're a non, um, whether you're in, in the business of medicine, whatever your role may be, we have to bring people together to kind of bring these solutions and have these conversations. So how did you kind of acquire that skill? You know, was it innate? And how do you go about spreading that communication to build togetherness? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, well, I like to talk um, and I feel like I like to listen too. So that is, I think, something when I'm speaking with someone, I'm not thinking about the next thing I'm going to say. I want to really hear what someone's saying. And, and so I'd say three things. One, I, I try to be as authentic as I can and vulnerable at all times with everyone. I'm not afraid to tell you I don't know. Uh, and I think that helps a great deal when you're building a collaboration to bring people together is to recognize what you don't know. And it's okay if you don't know it. Um, it's funny, I don't think as a, I think doctors do that well um, in the fact that you all, if I came to you and said that I had a problem with you know, a migraine and you're not a doctor to do migraines, you would help me find someone to do that. Um, and whereas I think sometimes in policy, the policy world, it's expected that you know all of the answers to everything. And so that's my first thing is when I don't know, I don't know and I have no problem admitting it. Two, I, I can be quiet. And I think that's an important time is to understand what people need because it doesn't matter what I think that they need. If a community needs something different, then my job to help them find what they need. And then I think uh, finally, my my grandmother always said, you know, uh, just practice the golden rule and treat people the way you'd like to be treated. And I think that has served me very well, when, whether or not I'm speaking to some of the richest funders in the world, or I'm speak, speaking to a patient. And I, you know, I close it out with this one story. We were holding a very large clinic in uh, New Orleans. Um, we were invited after Katrina because they didn't have a hospital. They didn't have a place for patients to go. And uh, we had set up a clinic and all of the patients were being connected to, whether it be a, a free or charitable clinic or a community health center, a federally run clinic. And, um, this gentleman came in and to say that he invented swear words would have been an understatement. He was very angry and he was, 
yelling and he wanted to see the lady in charge. And I, I was like, oh, that's going to be me. And so when I went over, I realized that the way we, I had set up, me, I had set up the um, intake system. We had asked the patients to read the intake form and he couldn't read. And you had mentioned before about how that can be humbling when you realize something about your, you know, you don't, it was very humbling. And we stopped on a dime and we changed everything. And I'm so grateful to, there was a thousand volunteers that day and 1500 patients. And they all changed right away with me. At the end, I said, I'd like to see him when he was done, you know, um, just to make sure he was okay. And when he, uh, he left, he handed me a backpack and he said, please don't open this until um, I leave. Uh, but if you didn't help me, that's what I was going to do today. And he, um, he gave me a hug and said, thank you for listening. And I opened up the backpack and there were 11 pill bottles, all of, you know, oxy and other drugs, a gun, a knife and three bottles of Jack Daniels and a note about how he was going to kill himself because he felt that he didn't need to be here any longer. And I'm thrilled to say that he's, um, He's healthy and he is volunteering at one of our clinics. He has a full-time job now. Um, but it, it reminded me a couple of things of how there but by the grace go I. At any point in time, we could, um, our lives can change. COVID taught all of us that. You know, you could have a job one minute and not. You could have a family member one minute or not. And so I think if I just keep that at the center of that everyone has a story and if I can figure out a way to make that work, now, I don't like everybody's story sometimes, and that doesn't mean you have to be friends with everyone. But if you can try to understand where everyone's coming and find a mid middle ground, I think that's proven to be the way that I've been able to build communities, or at least I hope that's how I come across to people. No, I, I, I believe that is the case. I mean, certainly we can feel that, right? We've been talking for a little over an hour now, and um, it comes across the screen. And so, thank you, Nicole, I want to Thank you for your time today, for educating us, for, you know, answering our questions, but also probably feeling these questions on a daily basis from a thousand and more like us. And I also want to thank you for doing the difficult work, right? I think what we end up doing, we like talking about this stuff, but, you know, when the day ends, we go back to our clinic and in medicine, particularly the path is laid out very clearly. It's long and it's hard. And you just got to put your head down and you got to grind and you got to just be very resilient. And once you get to the end, it's very easy because that's what you know. That's that's the way you have always done it. You can continue doing it that way. But that's not going to inspire change. That's not going to make the system better. That's not going to help those who desperately need help. And, and, and we have to shake it up. So thank you for continuing to do that. And, um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been a privilege talking to you and, you know, it sounds like you've got your work cut out for you uh, in the next couple of months. So, you know, I'd love to hear from you is how can we help? How can providers help? How can patients help? Um, how can we help you do the work and, and get the word out even more? Um, and then also, like, what is next for you? Like, what's coming up? Well, thank you so much. Uh, the easiest way you can help is uh, you can visit our website, nafcclinics.org. And... Um, Again, nafcclinics.org, you can find a clinic close to you in your area if you wanted to volunteer your time or if you wanted to give funds. Um, but also if you just sign up for our newsletter, uh, you can just go ahead and sign up for our newsletter because we'll have calls to action in there where you can, if you are already a busy provider um, and, uh, 
we have calls to action of just click this button and write a letter to support the work we're doing, or here's where we'll be, or tune in and listen. Um, you can follow our social medias and retweet and tweet, or, or any of that would be wonderful. We'd, we'd love to help that. And then I think for us, um, just continuing to ensure that uh, we live our, our vision of a just society where everyone can live with well-being. And we'll just keep knocking down the doors. Uh, and uh, I'll get I'll keep getting, you'll both be happy, my 10,000 steps on my Fitbit, if not more, walking those halls of Congress. And um, and I think just just continuing to stay the course because we know that there are people who need help and we, we want to help them. And uh, hopefully when we see what the president's budget looks like, we'll see where healthcare programs come and we'll get ready for the fight that we know is coming before Congress. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely link the website, all the resources that we mentioned today into the show notes for easy access. I do want to ask you that uh, for volunteering, can anyone volunteer or are you guys looking for anyone? Okay. We'd like anyone to volunteer. So we actually have um, on our website, it'll, you can become one of our volunteers in medicine. It's called you uh, click on the volunteer button. We, you fill out a form, we put, do the work for you. We connect you with the local clinic in your community, in your area. And if you are a medical, medical provider or non-medical, we need all of the help that we can get. And we can take your time, whether it's an hour a month or you have five hours a month. Um, it doesn't matter what you have to give. We're happy to work with you. And if you don't find something immediate that you'd like, there's always volunteer days and volunteers time. And now since COVID, we have volunteer opportunities um, as well. So if you, uh, and if for some reason you can't do anything else and you're, you want to help, but you don't know how else to help, Oh, if you go right on our website and you type in your zip code and you just get a can of food and you bring it over to the, the uh, free clinic, just understand that makes a difference because if someone has access to healthy fruits or vegetables, it can also help lower their, their blood sugar. It can help them with their diabetes and it can help them with their hypertension. So even if you think you can't do anything else, that's something that you could do that's actionable and easy. And kids like to pick out their, their um, own cans and bring them to the clinics too. And mm-hmm. we love to see that. I love that. You know, it's not, we so often think about the big, big things without realizing that sometimes the small things are the big things. Um, and so, yeah, definitely love that. Um, well, Nicole, as tradition for this podcast, our last question that we ask everyone is how do we add the health back to healthcare? But I am also interested in addition to that question to kind of just get your perspective. Can we survive with the current healthcare system that we have now? Or do you truly believe that, you know, there, there, there has to be another healthcare in the future or something that kind of has to form. Oh, well, I'm working my darndest to say that there's another healthcare uh, system in the future, one that actually puts health back in healthcare. I yeah. think that's um, what has been has been missing. I, I think there were not allowing providers and patients to connect on the way that they need to in order to help people get healthier. So I say that, no, this isn't the end and there has to be something different down the, down the line. Fantastic. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for coming on. We learned a lot. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you so much. As you learn in the show, the state of our healthcare and those in need is about to change dramatically in the next few months. So I ask that you please do what you can. At the very least, please check out the website and consider signing up for the newsletter or following the NAFC. My buddy Darsh said it best. We all have a role in this, and only together can we help redefine medicine.
Now, before signing off, please remember the important disclaimer that everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nor should it be construed as medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. We recommend that you seek the guidance of your personal physician regarding any specific health-related issues. However, if you enjoy the show, please be sure to subscribe, review, and share with anyone who you think will gain value from this. And until next time, thank you for listening.